Welcome to Persisters, an all-female live show and podcast. Each episode showcases one artist. You'll hear their performance from our live show, followed by an interview with us, Beth Rowe and Alex Kern. Please listen and please subscribe. So the theme is spring cleaning. And um, I want to thank Beth for giving me the segue because I thought everyone was going to mention Marie Kondo or as your slightly deaf, non-Asian friend says, Marie Okondo. Um, but here we are. Um, I'm fully aware that it is a bit on the nose to use Marie Kondo as my jumping off point, but I figure everyone will mention her at some point and it will at least break the ice and I can seem like I stayed on topic. <laughs> I've watched the whole series except one episode. I've appreciated all of them, and I too love watching Tiny Marie coming in and getting down on her knees and praying for each house of hoarding, only to a week later come back and see the magical evolution of a family that is fully aware that they are on TV, clean out their home, and be praised for the change they have gone through. I have a lot of friends who talk about how good that one episode is with The Widow, and that's the one I haven't watched. Just to be clear, I'm not a widow. Uh, I, I actually am married, and my husband is here, alive and well, <laughs> watching and probably quenching his jaw because his TMJ is currently running amok on him and destroying any hopes I have of not being woken up by his snoring. Uh, he didn't know I was going to talk about him, so he's excited about this. Um, but don't worry, because he's British, so he is impossibly polite and without fail apologizes and repositions himself instead of what I would do, which is retaliate with force and say, stop fucking waking me up. We love each other a lot. <laughs> and truly has every right to get angry at me because it's my fault that his jaw wakes him up and that his internal clock used to wake him up in the middle of the night. Because in 2016, for a few months, he woke up when I woke up. You see, I used to get up at 3.30 a.m. to get up, change into what I used to call gym clothes, but now have become hospital clothes, and make a coffee, pack a lunch, and get in my car to drive to the 10 freeway in the dark to West Covina. I was driving to a long-term care facility, which if you don't know what that is, it's basically a hospital where people go after you've had a medical emergency, like a heart attack, and you're still sick enough you need to stay in the hospital longer than a couple of days. These facilities are not fancy, but in their own way, they get the job done. I learned all of this because when my brother was 33 years old, he had a stroke that left him completely paralyzed, cognitively coherent, deaf, and unable to speak. He spent a month or so in San Francisco in two Bay Area hospitals while he was in critical condition before being transferred to the long-term care facility in Los Angeles. So that's why I, his 30-year-old sister, suddenly became what I'd call a hospital person. I'd have to knock on the glass door upon arrival because the security guards would keep it locked so they could fall asleep sometimes or use the bathroom. But they got used to letting me in and knowing that I would be there at 4 a.m. every morning. While I doubted their effectiveness, the familiar faces and characters were comforting in a time that felt endless and impossible. So I get to his room that he shared with one to three other patients, and long-term care facilities care for the indefinitely ill. And in the face of being surrounded by patients who had diabetes and chose to take their insulin medication with a swig of full sugar soda, patients detoxing from alcohol and stripping naked every chance they got to find a corner in the room to take a dump and smelling what happened in the room before seeing it, or patients getting daily dialysis and being warned that if their families keep bringing them junk food, their blood pressure will be dangerously high. I was completely and utterly jealous that we were surrounded by patients who played with their lives so carelessly, yet they still had a chance to make a change for the better and refused. 
I would close the curtains around my brother's bed and get to work. I learned how to read his heart monitor and knew based on the number if it meant he was in discomfort and needed pain medication. I checked his temperature and if it was high, which it routinely was because part of his stroke damaged his ability to manage his temperature. I knew to pull out the cooling blanket, get a nurse to help me put it under his sheet so it didn't burn his skin, and get ice packs on his abdomen and under his armpits. If he was due for a turn, I'd call the nurses and ask them to do it and assist in repositioning the pillows. I always tried to stay on the side where he could see me so that if he opened his eyes and realized he was being touched, he'd know that he was safe. It's probably an uncommon practice to be present when your sibling is being bathed or having their clothes changed, or at least hopefully this isn't a crowd of cousin lovers and you, ag <laughs> and you agree that there are some things you typically don't do with your siblings watching. But it became not only normal for me, but necessary. He was my older brother. He was my only sibling. He used to say we made a good team. So I treated this like we were battling it together. I was his security guard. I was the person watching over his body until it got better. I was the one that from the moment I saw him sick, there was no space for me to not be in control. I held down the fort because I wanted to make it okay for everyone else to fall apart. I swear to you, I felt like the more I gave, the less I slept, the more I knew about his condition and had a plan to ex anticipate the next problem, I felt like I was actively making him better. I was putting in the work in the hospital and I was going home at night bargaining with my own life about how I would give up any goodwill coming towards me for the rest of my life if it meant he would get better. I remember feeling like a doctor had just told me a miracle had happened when my brother had no temperature all day or he had a bowel movement. I remember being a sniper when it came to getting things done and while I didn't have the permission from the hospital, I snuck in an acupuncturist, a tiny nun from Mexico to pray for him, and I would inject nani juice into his feeding tube because I had an aunt tell me that it had healing properties. And when I would accidentally push the syringe too quickly and suddenly squirt nani juice all over the bed, walls, and on my brother's face, I could in a pinch change the sheets, clean the walls, pillowcases, and get his feeding tube back up and running without anyone ever knowing that five minutes ago it looked like a murder scene. I could check the patient assignment board in the hallways and go straight to the head nurse and complain that I didn't like the assignment and get it changed. And when the CNAs would find out that I had them removed and wanted to confront me, I wanted to throw down to them as if I could take down a 200-pound nurse with an attitude. I never had to fight the bitch, but it did make me laugh that the other nurses started using me as a pawn in their complaints against the same nurse, hoping that my complaints would escalate their concerns and hopefully get this chick fired. They would track me down in the room quietly to feed me intel about other inappropriate things this nurse had done and solicit me to say I had seen these things with my own eyes. <laughs> it was an operation in itself, and although this bitch kept her job, I appreciate that the other nurses had my back. And it was a big day in the hospital when one day at lunch, the nurses were ordering food for lunch and asked me if I wanted to put in an order. I treated it like I had made friends with cool girls and immediately texted my family telling them the good news. Making friends, hearing about hospital hookups and registered nurses who were stealing drugs and shooting up in the parking lot definitely brought some color to my hospital life. That is the curious thing about being in a terribly shitty situation. You find a way to live inside of it. The entire experience is absolute garbage, but there are times that still make you laugh amidst crying your eyes out. I was a hospital person until I didn't need to be one anymore. My brother's condition stayed the same, so we needed to move him again to what we had hoped would be the final hospital he could be at until he recovered. If I haven't painted the picture clearly enough, long-term care is a depressing place. The next step down is no picnic either, and options are so few that no choice is a good choice. But there was one. 
I found a hospital downtown where he could have his own room and it was part of a giant hospital that if he suddenly had a medical emergency, they could just move him to another wing and he could get help. I just didn't realize he would have a medical emergency after being there for only three days and pass away. We had just moved him in. We were getting to know the nursing staff and we didn't have a routine with them yet. I wasn't allowed to get ice or cooling blankets or to tell the nursing staff how to do their jobs. I wasn't recognized as the hospital person I had established myself as at the other place. I couldn't do my job. They wouldn't let me in the room when they called code blue. And I could have explained that he needed the cooling and the painkillers and perhaps a suppository because he hadn't had a bowel movement since he arrived. All I could do is sit in the hallway with my mother and say, this isn't happening to us. And when they finally let us in the room while they were in the process of shocking his heart in the hopes of bringing his pulse back and watching a line of nurses administer rib-breaking chest compressions for 45 minutes, all I could do was anticipate that this was the end. In a moment where I should have been screaming and fighting for this not to be the reality, I took hold of the reins again and held my mother and told her that we're going to be okay. And I told her as clearly as I could that I was still here and needed her. After they called it, I spoke calmly to the nurses and cleared the room, only to be forced to get on the phone with my brother's attending doctor, who never came to see my brother once in the three days he was there, which, if you're wondering, is not legal, and you're supposed to see patients within 24 hours of them being admitted. I got off the phone, went back into the room, and spent one more hour with my brother as his body went cold. I made sure my mother and I were out of the room before they put him in a bag to be carried to the morgue. I don't drive the 10 freeway anymore to West Covina, and I get to stay in bed all night long so I can shove my husband when he snores. I can't pass the hospital in downtown without feeling like I just want to run in and yell that this place is a murderer, and if I'm ever in a medical emergency, I'll make sure to use my last few breaths to say, take me anywhere other than that piece of shit hospital. I avoid shows about grief because I have a closet full of my brother's belongings that spark joy that no longer exists in my life. I drive his car order food in restaurants that I think he would order, listen to Oasis and constantly hear his voice in my head telling me to stop being sad when I trace back my steps and recognize that the help I put into motion played a part in him passing away. I think about this entire experience constantly and carry it with me like a secret that is occupying a part of my energy at all times. And although it's been two years and the experience doesn't have the same power over me that it used to, it's always there. I can tell you I don't have a brother anymore. But what I do have are a very particular set of skills, skills I have acquired over a very long shitty hospital career, skills that make me a nightmare for any medical professional that crosses my path. But for my brother, I was a team player until the end of it. Thank you. Welcome back to Persisters. I'm Beth Rowe. And I'm Alex Kern. We're here with Melissa Tang. How are you? Hi. (laughs) I'm well. She's like, what was that? I I didn't know that suddenly it just started. Here we are. It just started. Um, Melissa Tang, you're from LA. I am. I'm from Echo Park. You were here before it was cool to be here. Yeah, I was here when it was dangerous. (laughs) It still is dangerous. We just don't talk about it. Really? Yeah. Do you are there any particular uh, instances or situations you found yourself in growing up where you're like, oh my god? Absolutely. I, I had girls reference uh, uh, to me that like, oh, we were thinking about jumping you into our gang. Wow. And, what? And, as if I would be useful in any way in that capacity <laughs> at all. But just as a conversation starter, just to let me know, like in passing, like that's what we were thinking about. FYI, doing. and I just wouldn't have been uh, useful. Did you feel a little cool that they were like, "Mm, 
I definitely no. didn't. I felt like I was like, this is an opportunity to die and I'm not going to take <laughs> <Right>. it. <laughs> that's a smarter answer. I was a middle mm-hmm. schooler. I really don't think that we should have been doing any of that, but that's okay. I agree. I agree. I'm <laughs> yeah. from the suburbs of Ohio, so I was very far away from anything like that. But yeah. I'm sure in Cleveland there were... In other parts of Cleveland, there were certainly gangs, right? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I the I yeah no, didn't happen for me. Yeah, it, it d- didn't really happen for me either. <laughs> I was on the peripheral <laughs> still, but I lived in it. Yeah, and then uh, and then you also went to college uh, with Peter. You went to Carnegie Mellon. I did go to Carnegie Mellon. Peter, uh, we we didn't actually interact that much at school because. Was he a freshman when I was a senior? I I think we like saw he each other. He wasn't like passing. gang level cool, so yeah. uh, he he was he was a he was a couple years younger. Um, but then we met each other outside of college as well because we went to acting class mm-hmm. in L.A. where we all were in class together, and yes, you guys we were, were technically in class together. And then love happened. Peter is for those of you just joining us for the first time. Peter is Beth's fiance. Yes. Okay. Anyways. That's good. That's good context. Well, you know, it's important. Not everyone knows who Peter yeah. is. No it's offense, Peter. And you'll never hear from him here because this is for women. Yeah. That's right. That's yeah, he is, he's not like Beyonce. He doesn't have just one name either. <laughs> so it's, no, it's good. It's mm-hmm. good. Um, but then you came back to L.A. I did. Yeah, I was really lucky because um, Carnegie Mellon's in Pittsburgh. So I went to Pittsburgh for acting conservatory and then my family was from L.A. So it was really easy for me to come out here and then half of my classmates came to L.A. as well, mm-hmm. so it, it worked out for all of us. That's really nice. Half yeah. of your class went to New York and half went to L.A. Is that kind of how it shook out? Yeah, because half of the class is typically from the East Coast, and a lot of them are pursuing musical theater, and so it feels like a natural progression for them to try it out in New York first. And then what yeah. o- oftentimes what happens is they go to New York, they want to be in music theater, and they're like, no, I don't want to sing and dance anymore. <laughs> and mm-hmm. you're like, what are you talking about? And then they, and then they end up coming to L.A. at some point, too. Did, did you do part of the musical theater or were you the straight acting? Program? I was in the acting program, but I took voice lessons from one of the teachers there. Cool. So I was kind of on the DL singing very privately. And then once every year I'd decide to sing in front of people and we'd have a discussion about you sing. And I'm like, yeah, but don't mention it. And I just like put it away for a while again. That's so funny. Did you um, grow up acting like in high school or middle school? Uh, I definitely didn't grow up acting. It was something that I kind of was always interested in, but I explored like in the latter portion of high school. And then when I kind of really got into it and my teachers were like, hey, you can actually get into a school doing this. I was like, okay, well, that sounds like a good idea. Mm. (laughs) And then I got into school and I, I was lucky enough to get into Carnegie Mellon. And then I met a bunch of kids who had been acting their entire lives. Mm. And I was like, I'm in big trouble. (laughs) I was like, kind of committed. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I was kind of thinking this was cool. I think I know what's going on, but they really knew everything. You know, they were having conversations about musicals and plays and things that I just wasn't familiar with at all. And so I had to really commit once I got there or I was going to definitely be out of my league very quickly. And that it's interesting also because you were like the one that's from LA. Yeah. Yeah. And and, and you could have been you like, like you, you like for all intents and purposes, you could have had like an agent when you were 10. And I think that's my problem is that I'm very upfront about those things. Like if I didn't know anything, I would never pretend like maybe I'm right. like a terrible actor on top of it where it's just like I, I have a very hard time lying or being perceived in a way that I don't feel is natural. And so when I go there, I was just very much like I have no idea what that is. 
I don't know what I'm doing. Oh, I think that's great though, because <laughs> yeah. while it's while acting is both things, it's like lying, but like yeah, it's really authenticity. So you're and, just and, like this is who I am, and you do end up graduating and then being hired to be yourself. So I think it it does end up being a plus in the long run. But I think in school, when you're constantly asked to create characters that are distant from who you actually are you're like I need to know how to do this like a little bit <laughs> mm-hmm. and I and I really was uh struggling for a long time I certainly wasn't a student in that school where it was like oh this is like the star student I was just kind of like there hanging out and hoping to get through it and Carnegie Mellon does a great thing at the end of it they do showcases yes and at the end of your showcase when you graduated from school did you get representation from that yeah, I was I was really Damn. really wow. fortunate where I I picked a school that had a showcase that took us to New York and to Los Angeles and I was really lucky to get a really positive response. Um and I had I had options, which was wonderful and I ended up staying with those people for a long time and I I actually met my manager who I'm still with at that showcase. She didn't initially represent me cuz she was an agent and then when she became a manager, I was one of her first clients. Wow. And it was incredible oh because I got a show I got fired from the show and she was like hey do you want a manager and I was like are you sure because I just got fired she's like yeah that's okay (laughs) I was like that sounds pretty okay and she has since been just this person that I look to for everything I I think when you make those relationships with representation it can be kind of tricky and sticky and people feel like they need to be a certain way and um, luckily she's taken me as I am (laughs) and I take her in the same way and uh, it, it works out because it's it's um it's really comfortable and when you do this kind of thing it can be very uncomfortable all the time and to have an ally who supports you no matter what is a really important piece of the puzzle to kind of keep going mm-hmm. that's so cool yeah and that like that's like the ideal relationship and yeah. I don't think like you're the I think one of the only people I know that has that relationship yeah and that's why it's so common that you have actor friends who come to you and they kind of are like, is this okay? Is this right or wrong? And I'm kind of like, it should be pretty easy. Like it's just a conversation about what you're wearing or what you hope to do. And no one can blame you for having your own interests and wanting to pursue them. And if they do perceive that as being strange, well then I would question the relationship because that's not someone who really supports you for who you are. And we're in LA, we're being cast to be ourselves. Right. 99% of the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think that's really important. And then what was the first job that you booked out of school? The first job I booked out of school was like a coast, like a, like a day player on a movie called Ticket to Ride. And I was like party person number four. Cool. <laughs> and um, it was a movie where I had to be in a group situation where we there was music and people were talking to each other. I think each of us of the party friends had like one or two lines, but they don't tell you ahead of time, like there's no music. there's no nothing there's 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 nothing to kind of like jam to and you just kind of see everybody doing it and you start like bopping your head and you're like yeah I I know what I'm doing and 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 I again I was way too upfront about everything and was constantly telling people like this is my first job isn't this exciting like I, I just kind of took that with me everywhere because I was just like I'd rather just tell you rather than you think like, oh, you're doing something weird and you should stop that. And it's mm-hmm. like, if you know, you can help me quicker and I can kind of like jump out of it a little sooner. But it was uh, it was a great first job. I think that's awesome, though, to have that. It's pretty I mean, to carry yourself that way yeah. is pretty refreshing because then you're just open to all the possibilities. And then people yeah. aren't like 
<clears throat> you know, I think that's like ideal if someone's like, well, actually, if you could do it this way, so yeah. they know where you are and won't offend you. No, you know. And even now, I walk around feeling like I have no idea what's happening. Uh-huh. You know, like even when it's good, you never kind of go into it feeling like this is the best thing I've ever done. You're like, I'm constantly trying to figure out a way to do this, to change this, where, or, or I, I always feel like running a scene is kind of like playing a video game where you're trying to hit each little piece as it comes towards you. And if you get it, you get the points. And if you can, if you, you have to hit this one point so you can get to the next point. And so I kind of work through it. I'm like, I didn't get that one. I need to go back and do that one. And it's not like anybody thinks of it like that, but I was just like, I love that. That's that's what I'm thinking in my mind. I was like, I have to go back and hit that other thing. And then I can go on and move on. And everyone's like, what are you talking about? I was like, you don't need to know, but it's fine. <laughs> but that's great. I mean, I think that you do have to have a system, right? Because it yeah. could be so vague and arbitrary and uh, making it technical, certainly, like in yeah. whatever whatever way that means to you. Um, so you can kind of like stay on track for yeah, yourself. We were talking about like being off book and how essential that kind of is to making you feel like I can go in and do my job great. And when you yeah. aren't, you're like, I'm kind of just winging some of this, but some of it's kind of super alive because I don't know what's going to happen next. Mm-hmm. Um, but you just, all these little pieces play into you feeling like I can really do my job the way I always wanted to, because oftentimes the scenarios in which you're asked to do your job are never perfect. You know, so you've got to find something where you know this is yourself and how to do it and how to get into it. It's your own Melissa method. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's that's me and my my Melissa acting method. Do you ever run lines with your husband? All the time. Oh wow. We do. Oh. Yes, yes. I, I'm, <laughs> because I, I'm. This is a little inside baseball, but how do you do self tapes with your husband, Melissa? I do self tapes in the bathroom. He either stands on top of a toilet or I stand inside the shower. And uh, we, we we run it there because we have the nicest lighting in there, and it's just our own little box. And and what do you what do you what do you drink sometimes? I drink I I drink I, in general <laughs> I just drink to do self tapes. I, I think I really I've made so many self tapes. I've only ever gotten one job from them, and I've been an actor for twelve years. And I make multiple tapes in a year for different things. Um, so at a certain point, you're just like. I just need to do this for me. Yeah. <laughs> and 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 oftentimes you're not because you're constantly afraid of like, how is this being perceived? Does it look okay? And I find that when you drink and make self-tapes, you can kind of just be okay with like <laughs> one or two takes and rather than like getting into a fight with your husband yes. because he's not saying the lines at the tempo that you hear in your crazy mind that you've never let him know about. Right. Until you're mad at him in the moment. <laughs> I have a, um, I really, I have the exact opposite problem. Definitely do less self tapes than you. But whenever uh, Peter or myself coach each other, it becomes like, um, I didn't ask for that note. Right. It's like, right. Really? Oh no. Yeah. No, that's a line read. How dare you? Mm-hmm. And then you have to kind of get over feeling insecure that you've just yeah. fought, even though he's. Helping, helping you yeah. and supporting you, but you're like, I'm sorry, I got angry at you. You just realize I'm terribly insecure about myself, and that this is all going to end poorly. And th- I'm so sorry. I don't even know why we're doing this. We should just stop doing the tape now. And that's all on tape, you yeah. know, because you're just running it over and over again. And yeah, this is this is what it's like to be. This is the dream. This is exactly so what funny. I tell you. This is the dream. This is it. This is what it looks like, and um, it's great. 
Okay. Is your yeah. husband an actor too? He's not an oh, actor. So he uh, he's a TV executive. Okay. We met actually when we were both assistants in Hollywood. I was acting and auditioning, but I used to work uh, in casting. I used to work in casting too. Really? Yeah, in New York. But yeah. So that was my day job for a long time, and then I I worked at a studio as like a paid intern for a minute. Um, and so he was an assistant at a development company when we met, and so it's been amazing because it's kind of like all of our friends started as assistants and now we're in our 30s and nobody's an assistant anymore and when people are looking for assistants we're like I literally don't know one anymore because everyone's kind of just gone through that journey and they're Mm -hmm. past that point and it's Mm -hmm. and it's awesome because Mm -hmm. your friends are all doing well at the same time um but yeah we met as assistants uh he's a tv executive so when he gives me notes for my acting he is concerned with the entire conceptual way that the story is being perceived. Mm -hmm. And my constant question is like, how can I achieve that as one person? With the lines, you Mm -hmm. up. Yes. Yeah. 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 (laughs) And then he goes, I'm so sorry. I support you. I agree. (laughs) That was just for me. And I was like, I'm glad this is about you. Okay. Was it helpful for you working, obviously, working in casting before? Definitely. Yeah, I mean, I think stability is something that really helps an actor after they graduate school, finding something that's stable and structured because there isn't anything like that that is just handed out to you when you graduate from school and you want to be an artist and you you feel so passionate about what you do. It's like when you have something and a reason to get up every day, know you're making money to support yourself. And also on top of that, for me, getting an education in the process yeah. um, and, and just mm-hmm. having really wonderful bosses who really supported me as an actor on top of appreciating the work that I was doing for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I was really, really fortunate to get to watch people get jobs and how amazing that That's is and, a cool and how angle. and how you can see casting support actors when they really believe in them and, and somebody who comes in who doesn't really think it's going to go anywhere and they get to, you know, the fourth or fifth round of everything and seeing them kind of like make their dream come true Mm. I think it's really inspiring I mean it's very heartbreaking too and you see that like certain things aren't open to certain people and you don't really have a rhyme or reason to why that is it's just the way that things are you see a lot of that too um but I think it's for you to decide what you want to take from it and just know that when you're in your day job that it's temporary as an artist you know it's always temporary and it's for you to decide how are you going to take this and move to the next thing. And you always need to make time for yourself to do your art too. So it was, it was really, really helpful. Did they send you out or did you audition at all for them or? Every now and then I would, but it was always like, uh, I was never really expecting them to give me anything other than my day job. And they were always like, whatever you need, we're so supportive of you. But I just really. That's also been like really special that they were open to having an actor working in their office because that's like not heard of. No, and and the is it? I've yeah. heard that because like Chrissy Metz, she was yeah. worked in casting. She for, was an agent, I thought. People definitely oh, can but be, maybe yeah, maybe yeah, maybe she was in casting. Yeah. yeah, that makes. sense. I think being a reader for a, a casting done, office is, is yeah, a much more common thing. But like actually uh, working as full an time, assistant where sure. I'm answering the calls from the agents and they're they're trying to get my bosses on the phone or they're just they just want to talk because you're just like their phone your calls agent. have been rejected for hours mm-hmm. and so they just need to pitch to somebody to feel like they're doing it. And I'm just like I I don't know what to tell you, but I'm 
I, I cannot do anything for you. I'm so sorry. And you see the whole process from the inside out, not just the actors, but like the representation portion of it. Mm-hmm. Or you hear from people and you're like, I would never want someone who speaks to other people like that to speak mm-hmm. on my behalf. And yeah. you kind of keep like a running list in your mind of like, this is just not for me. I would just never do it this way. And, and I think that's why I look back on the relationship that I have with my manager and go, this is what it's supposed to be. Yeah. Because I can see how it's not sometimes. Mm-hmm. And it's, I think some actors would be horrified <laughs> if they ever saw the way the conversation goes down mm-hmm. when someone's fighting to get someone in the room. Sometimes it's really ugly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember mm-hmm. being in an audition as a reader and only one time did I like have the complete opposite reaction of the, when the actor left with the casting director. And it was like, it was like, Oh, I thought it was like, that was, and then and then he said, "Amazing, he's so hot." <laughs> and I was like, "Wow, it's a part for a hot guy." And yeah. then, like, really does everything else do, like you have to just be kind of like you can be mediocre. Yeah. So <laughs> if it's like if you look exactly what how they see it in mm-hmm. the script, yeah, that was bananas. But I think it's so amazing that you had such a singular focus while you were working there because when I was, I wasn't full time. I just always remember in the back of my head being like, oh, I want to be in this room. And then I would have moments of like, oh, God, I really don't want to be in this room, which yeah. was like crazy, you know, the both of them. But something that I thought was really interesting is like the moment the actor walks in the door, the like first three seconds, yeah. you're like, you know. Someone's right. Yeah, yeah just, or not right. natural essence is this person. And you can see someone who is beyond talented, but um, they just aren't inherently this character. Mm-hmm. Yes, that part is bananas. That part is the thing that sucks because it was yeah. like, you were the best actor. Yes. For sure. Yes. Mm-hmm. You're not going to get the part because it's not you. It's like, it's yeah. just not, and it's that's, not a, And it's that's not the you. thing that can break really talented actors because mm-hmm. they're in there going and consistently doing incredible work and they're not being... Um, rewarded for it in the same way that they should be because it just has nothing to do with that sometimes. And I I think you do get a lesson in that. And, and I think the thing that drove me to continue to want to keep doing it for myself was as much as I enjoyed being in the room for other people, I really wanted to feel like when I get into this room, I want it to, because I did it for myself. Like I remember being in, um, taping rooms at studios and editing people's tests for TV pilots. And I remember thinking like I was there at like 10 o'clock at night, like editing these tapes to get them ready for the next morning. And I was there with like the janitors thinking like, I want to be in this room and I want to make my own tape. And I don't want it to be because my boss did me a favor. I want it to be because I got myself there. And, and it, and it, and it mattered. I think it mattered to believe that and to say that. And the actual truth is when I actually did get a job and did test in that room, it was all mine. Mm-hmm. You know, I got to appreciate that and celebrate it, knowing that I had great support and great education in terms of understanding how this worked. And I didn't let the situation take over how I felt. And I was able to still do my job in the context of all of this stuff happening and wanting it for so long. And it just felt like I've been working towards this moment. Wow. And when the moment finally happens, you're like, I can see all the work that went through that. Like, Mm -hmm. I I think that that is the most special thing for actors is when they get a job finally. And you don't feel like I'm celebrating this, like, one thing that happened in an instant. When you do it for long enough, you're like, I'm celebrating the work that it takes to keep going. Totally. To get to this day where I feel like I am being seen Mm -hmm. because... 
360 days of the year, I'm being told no. Mm -hmm. And it's so much work to have people get behind you and go, you're still doing great. You're still doing great. Keep at it. Keep at it. Keep at it. Because that one day in the year, suddenly you have a job that mm -hmm. takes you, that takes care of you for the rest of the year. And that's what's really hard about this entire job. That it feels a little like a lottery. It sometimes. takes forever. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It takes forever. And you have to have so much um, like emotional positivity and like yeah. emotional strength and perseverance, certainly. But I think for me, it's just staying positive. Yeah. And no one can 100% of the no, time. No, of course not. No. We're human. I mean, every time it doesn't work out, there are uh, there's a version of tears, let's be honest. There's a version of tears. There's a, there's a process that you go through when you don't get something and you feel like you've invested everything you have. Like, I, I'm, I'm very, uh, I, I'm a big fan of going to the audition, doing everything I can, and then running through a drive-thru. Really? Yes. <gasps> I love that. And I text pictures of what I'm eating to my manager. <laughs> like as before or after? After. After. Yeah. I got one of those like naked chicken chalupas from Taco Bell once. Yum. And I was just like, it's basically a giant chicken tender with the fillings of a taco, but it's a taco chicken. And I was like, this sounds amazing. And I was like, I have no regrets. I have none. And, and it's the same thing. It's like when I'm waiting to hear about a job, it's like I started doing this thing where I'll go and like, Eat a, eat a piece of cake with my husband or something and act like we just got the job. <gasps> because oh, I'm just that. like, I don't know when this is going to be over. And it could be over today. And I'd rather celebrate that we got this far than just sit around and like wait for permission to be happy that like yeah. we're in the mix or we're, mm -hmm. we're, we're almost going to get it and we're almost there because it's like you're going to be almost there so many more times than you are actually going to get the job. Mm -hmm. And being almost there means you did a good job. Yeah. And then after we hear we don't get it, then we cry and then we drink the wine right. and we do the whole thing. <laughs> but like we eat the cake first. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm going to take that with me. We're just going to eat <laughs> a have lot to of cake. Melissa, yeah. I up cake. You, uh, for a long time, I remember you were, you said you didn't want to get married until you were on a show. Yeah. And you said that for a really long time. And then you eventually got engaged and you picked a date before you were on a show, right? Uh, I or was actually, I, I had gotten engaged and picked a date before I had gotten the show. That is right. Yes. Because you manifested that. You but, were like, I want to be on a show when I get married. Oh my God. And yeah. then you picked a date and then you booked the Kaminsky method. Yeah. And then I actually worked right, like while I was planning my wedding, went and got married and then went back to work like on a Wednesday. I mean, a couple of factors obviously played into that. I mean, I'd always wanted to feel like I could pay for a wedding. Like, I think it goes with the same thing. It was like, I wanted to put myself through college. I just paid off my student loans 12 years later. Oh. I feel oh like that's my like a God. miracle. Congratulations. Congrats. With actual acting money, I think that that's like a big deal. Wow. You should like, you should do a <laughs> seminar at Carnegie Mellon. Like, Seriously. they should like give you, a, like, they should give you a badge. Yeah, 12 years later, you can feel like you can be financially <laughs> but even, stable. Right. But 12 years later is a success story. And yeah. that's like to tell like, dang. But that, I think that's a much more realistic number, which is like, mm -hmm. I was always told 10 yeah. years. Which I, is I thought it was seven years. for a while, but yeah. yeah. 12 oh no, sounds... it went up to 10 to 12. Oh, okay. Yeah. Got it. Okay. But you can't tell that to a kid who's just graduating from school. No. no. Especially because you never know, maybe that kid could 
get a job on his second audition or which her second audition, I've which happened. Plenty mm-hmm. of kids have mm-hmm. that happen, and it's incredible, and they should run with it and be as confident in that moment for the rest of their careers. And also them doing that inspires other people. Yeah. So mm-hmm. as much as it's hard to watch that not be you, it also makes other people say, that could be me, which yeah. is super cool. But you could also be the version where it takes a bit of time and it's still okay. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is a... As, as a bigger example of something that more people need to be okay with. And I un- understand uh, also outside of the industry, yeah. you know, because I think it does seem like this very confusing world where you're just like, what's going on? I don't, people want answers, right? People want to yeah. know what it, figure yeah. it out. And it's just like, eh, we're in the middle of it and we're figuring it out. And especially when you go to college where you're being, you know, being primed to get out here and be an artist and create and be an actor. And then you get out and no one's actually offering you the opportunity to be an actor. You've got to figure out how to maintain feeling like one. Mm. Yeah. Did you, what did you do? Did you, I know you took classes with Beth. Yeah. Um, did you put up plays? Did you write? Did you, what did, what did you do to make I just yourself? found that I realized that the other parts of my life were as important as being an actor. And because I was lucky enough to have representation right out of school and I had opportunities to audition and, and get jobs, that kind of portion was set but I kind of knew I had to fill in the spaces, like I had to fill in the gaps. And so I think having the job in casting and meeting Sebastian, my husband, like all the other parts of my life started to develop. And I think that that's kind of a really important thing to remember too. It's like art is going to be art. It, you can't be on a specific timeline of when you're going to succeed or continue to get to do your job. And so I think if you can find other things that interest you, like I became like a crazy CrossFit person, like I, which is okay. I think a, like a normal thing for actors. You like take up the gym, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yoga. Yeah, yeah. you're like how but many it's hours? Also going back to stability, like I yeah. like mm-hmm. having gyms like that really does. There's there's community within it which is great. Yeah. But then it's also like so much of it is my day starts at 8 a.m. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Or friends that aren't actors. I mean, I think oh that gosh, is yeah. amazing in mm-hmm. itself where you're like, I have friends who don't act, who don't talk about auditions, who mm-hmm. talk about like doing nonprofit work and actually doing things that are making the world better. Like, mm-hmm. I like hearing about this. I want to participate in this. And you kind of realize that the bubble that you were living in and the thing that drives you, like it's such a small piece to like the rest of the world. Um, and so you just, you just make your time valued in a different way. Yeah. Yeah, Get that perspective. Yeah. Do you, are your, like socially, or do you, you still have a lot of your Carnegie Mellon friends are super close. Yeah. And then also some that you grew up with too. Some of my, um, friends that I went to high school with, uh, I'm still super close with. They were in my wedding and, uh, friends from Carnegie Mellon. We, I was lucky enough to be in a class where it's like, we're still really friendly and still very cool. supportive of each other. And I think that that is an evolution in itself too. I mean, when you graduate with your acting class and everyone's super ambitious when they get out here, you know, things, things don't happen all at the same time for everybody. Everybody's a different person with a different path. Um, and so you go through an evolution with your actor friends too, about mm-hmm. how to support each other. Cause yeah. you don't do it perfectly when you get out of school. No, no. But you also make mistakes when you're older too. Yes. Mm-hmm. You, you make the mistakes when you're younger and you just kind of keep making them. So I, I think it's, it's, it's a really fortunate place to be in when you get older and you're all kind of settled and you can really support each other because 
all of that sort of insecurity goes out the window when it comes to like your relationship with your friends. Yeah. Because you realize that like I can be insecure all day at home and talk about it in private. Yeah. (laughs) But I will not let that dictate how I treat other people. You hit the ground running as a professional before, like everyone was required to have a web series and (laughs) like, and like 10,000 hours of improv classes before. And that is very cool. Thank you. But I mean, just remember, I did have a day job for like six years while I was pursuing acting sure. and they would let me go out and, and work. But I but I definitely was at just exercising somewhere. a muscle yes. before a lot of people get, yeah. get to do that in a way. And also so seeing smart. it. Yeah. It's just like the way that you kind of um, I want to say like. I, like my brain wants to be like manipulated the system, but if you didn't <laughs> manipulate any system, you just like made really smart choices to mm-hmm. make sure it was working towards the thing you were going for. Yeah. And, and uh, the place that I ended up working in casting, I actually interned for them as a free intern in the summertime as well, while I was in school. Mm-hmm. So I was kind of getting to know them and they were getting to know me for like a really long period of time where that's kind of why they totally got that I was an actor and I didn't hide it. And I think it's really important to be upfront and honest and then be really respectful of the place that you're working during the day that it's like, this is not your moment to shine. Sure. (laughs) This is your moment to do your day job so you can afford to go take your acting class and to go audition and to do all of that. And, and I think people, respect and trust you more when you do that you know like when when you start to talk about yourself I I mean I don't I in general I don't really appreciate actors who talk about themselves (laughs) like whether it's social or in a working Mm -hmm. situation I just find that really unsettling and uncomfortable and it's it's such a funny thing where it's like I'm still like a gym person now and it's only after like a year people have come up to him and like I had no idea you were an actor and I was like wouldn't it be horrific if if you you knew based on how I was interacting with you that (laughs) I was a performer that would be my worst nightmare wouldn't it and they're like yeah that's that's like aren't you glad I'm like I think people who just need attention are like yeah yeah (laughs) I'm like that sometimes I I think it's like our, our moments but particularly when it comes to like your job you're like I, I would never want to flag people in the middle of like running on a treadmill that like totally. something about the way I'm running just shows oh, you that tell. I'm just like giving it to you all right. the time. Right. No, definitely not. Got that Tom Cruise run down. You guys, I could do a perfect <laughs> run in a movie. Yeah. <laughs> it seems to me that writing could also be your craft. Uh, that is definitely something new that I'm exploring. And I was very, I really appreciated being asked to do it. Oh, um, we were so grateful that you did it. Well, let's mm-hmm. just back her to, because you Beth has actually asked me to do this a previous time, but uh, if you've listened to the thing that I wrote, uh, uh, hospitals seem to kind of be an ongoing theme in my life, and so the first time that she asked me, my mom was actually in the hospital that time. Oh, I And I remember geez. out of nowhere, out of the blue, after my brother had passed away. So oh this was gosh. like immediately after, within like the first six months, and she's like calling me saying like, hey, can we meet? And I'm literally in a hospital room and I had to sleep overnight unexpectedly and I was like I don't think I'm gonna be able to do this (laughs) Mm -hmm. I don't know what's happening yet you're like okay cool no problem and so enough time passed my mom is fine now she came to the show she really enjoyed it um but yeah that was the first time and so the second time came around and I had feel I, I I'd felt an itch to kind of put down what I had experienced and see what kind of response it 
it had because I was really afraid that I was just going to give like a book report of what had happened to me. And that was just going to be, um, I don't know, kind of masochistic. And people were just going to be like, oh, I'm so sorry for her. That's so sad. That's such a sad story. But my real desire was to see if this was like a story that had interest to people in a way that made them curious to see like what else happened to us. And like, yeah. I really only fun, like channel just one point of view for what I wrote. And I didn't know that was going to happen to me, but there are so many parts of it. I mean, it's like, you got to know what happened to me in the hospital with my brother, but like, you don't know anything about him. Like yeah. you don't know his like personality. Like my mom was there constantly. My husband was there constantly. We got engaged while we were I in the that. hospital. Wow. And like talking about like when we decided to get married, we got married because my brother had a stroke that almost killed him. And on one of the first days in the hospital when we were sitting in the waiting room, I was just like, I need to marry you now. Like I, I like <sighs> I, 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 I need to marry you now because I'm literally watching this person <laughs> at least <made. laughs> both of you just like tilt they just tilted their heads back and they're just like I'm a lady oh. I can't help it <laughs> but we were in the waiting room and we just were sitting there being told like people don't survive this and it was completely unexpected my brother this happened to my brother in San Francisco so when we we were called in the middle of the night saying he had an emergency we didn't understand what that meant and my mom and I got in the car and drove all night long to see him and got there at six in the morning and were told like in the car, like he was non-responsive when we brought him in. You don't really understand what that means. Like you don't catch yeah. on to like medical lingo until you're like really immersed into it. So I was like, you just mean that he's like not awake. Right. And like non-responsive means like, no, like, like nothing, like no, like maybe a heartbeat, maybe you're breathing, but like you're not there in this moment. And you know, seeing somebody you love like in an instant be on a on a on a in a on a breathing machine with their with their whole body just kind of limp and his you know his girlfriend <laughs> crying at his at his side, you're just kind of like, I don't know what to expect. And 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 doctors were really brutal about it. They were like, people don't survive this. And so Seb and I were just sitting in the waiting room after he drove like like a couple days later to come and meet me. And I was just like, we need to get married now because I don't understand why we waited so long. Like, I think you just think you have this infinite amount of time. And we had already been together for, you know, f five, five, six years at that point. And I was just like, I'm, I'm ready to marry you now. Like, we can do this. And I was like, I know you're supposed to, like, propose to me and all of that. <laughs> I was like, I'm happy to fill out paperwork myself. And I will take myself to the courthouse and I'll write it all down. And, and he's just like, you know, you, like, need to wait for someone to propose to you before you can fill out paperwork. And I was just like, aren't we past that? Aren't we just, like, oh, wow. totally past that? Um, yeah. And then he proposed to me while we were on that crazy hospital schedule that I had mentioned. And then we were engaged for like a year because, you know, I, I don't think you can understand what it's like until it happens to you where you're like, you have a perception of what your wedding's going to be like, and then your brother dies. And then that wedding is not the same wedding that you planned. And every little piece of it is full of emotion naturally. And when you realize that a piece of it is missing constantly, you're just like, I can't do this. You know, like my entire family was not in a position to be like, we're ready to celebrate. We're yeah. ready to do this. Like absolutely none of us were. And I think it's a crazy circumstance to be in, to be told like celebrate, celebrate, celebrate. And you just can't. 
but he did propose to me while we were on that schedule. Uh, he tried to propose to me two other times before it actually worked out just because I was exhausted and I was just like, no, thank you. I don't feel like going outside. And my mom was doing the thing where she was like, you should get your nails done. You should get your nails done. You should get your nails done. And I was like, why do I need to get my nails done? I'm in the hospital every day. Like, this is what it is. It's fine, you know? Um, and he finally proposed to me. And I just want to also mention, I designed my own ring. Like, I went to the store with him. So when he actually was trying to propose to me, I think I could have done a lot more to support him and, like, make it easier, but I just didn't. <laughs> so he tried to get me to go outside, and I was just like, what are you doing? Even though, remember, I designed a ring. I knew we were getting engaged. I was, like, trying to fill out paperwork. And uh, he's like, nothing. It's just, um, just come outside. And my dogs are wearing bow ties at this point, too. And I was like, no, thank you. I closed the door, go into the bathroom, and lock myself in there. And I was like, did I just say no? <laughs> like, I don't know what I just did, but I just, I just did it. And um, I came out. I was like, what was that? He's like, nothing, and totally was lying to me again. The dogs took the bow ties off, and then finally we're in the kitchen, and he's just like, but the dogs have something to ask you, and takes out a note that says, like, dear mom, will you marry our dad? He loves you a lot. He gives me this note. I start crying, and I was just like, oh, my God, I haven't looked at my ring. <laughs> and I look down and just start grunting, like, oh, my God, it's mine. <laughs> You became like, like in the oh, ring. Uh, like you became Schmigo. I was like, this is mine. <laughs> <laughs> because I hadn't seen it all put together. And I was just like, oh my God. And my mom was upstairs because my mom lives with us. And uh, she was pretending that she was gardening and watering her plants. And she was just like, what's happening? I'm just watering the plants. And I was like, we just got engaged. She's like, oh. Well, that's nice. <laughs> I was like, you guys are terrible liars. <laughs> yeah. But that's, but that's how it happened. But I, I, I would definitely say, too, like getting engaged or, or being in a situation where someone's sick or you lose somebody, it's moments like that where you feel like your own personal life is moving forward yeah. that kind of remind you that, like, things are still going to happen for you. Because I do feel like a constant thing that I had felt was it's always going to be like this. Yeah. It's always going to be sad. It's, it's just going to be hard all the time. And... I feel like the when we got engaged, it was a moment that reminded me like good things can still happen to you as like a couple because it felt like we were going to experience sad things, not just myself, but like the two of us. Like this was just yeah. always going to be the tone that we were experiencing. And it was kind of the beginning of see feeling like there's still going to be stuff that's just ours rather than this experience is mm -hmm. going to affect everything. How do you, how did you get from the place where you are at living hospital day to day to being on a Golden Globe winning television show and having paid off your student <laughs> loans. Like how, how did you, how, what was the thing that helped you persist through that? Uh, one of the biggest things that helped me was, well, first of all, I, I feel like when it comes to acting and when it comes to jobs, I've been in a really, um, appreciative place where I felt like every job kind of had a purpose to like where I was in my life. And it really spoke to what was happening to me in the moment, as opposed to just being kind of like a, a thing that I was doing for no reason at all. Um, for instance, when my brother was in the hospital and I was kind of immersed in all of the hospital stuff, I ended up playing a doctor on a TV show. Wow. 
at the same time. And that wasn't surprising to me because I was obsessed with knowing everything about his situation and how I could support him better. And I would constantly be asked while I was tending to him was like, are you like a nurse? Like, are you, uh-huh. are you somebody who's like doing this? And I was like, no, I just You're like, I'm a method. Actor. I just, uh, care a lot. Like, mm-hmm. I, I don't, I don't know what to say other than like, I'm listening. And when someone's life is on the line, you're going to pay attention. Um, and so it, it kind of fed into not only feeding into the experience that I was having, but it also enabled me financially to take that job and then come back and go, all I have to do is be with you. Yeah. And if I hadn't had that job, I couldn't have been in the hospital with him every single day for the five, six months that we were there. Um, so it kind of just has always kind of worked out that way for me. And then with Kaminsky Method, it's like, I, I don't know how I suddenly ended up on a show about grief. You know, it's it's another one of those moments where you're like, the universe is kind of moving in your direction and what you're putting out is what it's kind of feeling from you. And even though I'm a character who's on the peripheral of someone who's dealing with that, I just really appreciated that I was participating in something that I felt like I felt like it was accurate. You know, I feel like when you are losing someone, it's not always sad. And that feels weird to say because it feels inappropriate. And what I mean by that is the context of your situation is devastating, but sometimes you laugh in the context of being devastated. And there are things that are incredibly awkward that happen to you that you and your family will laugh at because people just don't know how to engage with you anymore. Mm. You know, I was, I was, I'm, I'm still in my thirties. I was in my thirties when my brother got sick and to see how people, my friends, how my friends interacted with me, how, our family members interacted like some people just aren't equipped. Mm-hmm. You know, some people say things like, if that had happened to me, I would kill myself. I mean, uh, if, uh, you know, if, or uh, we had a, we had a really young doctor at one of the teaching hospitals we were at kind of give us a hypothetical of like, what are we supposed to do? And she was like, well, I mean, just for me personally, like if someone had told me that I couldn't be a doctor anymore, like I don't really know if I'd want to live anymore. And mm-hmm. she's saying this in the context of, you know, a couple days ago, I just found out that my brother is completely paralyzed and is in a situation from a stroke that he may never come out of. And she's asking me what I want to do about his health. And it's like, I didn't ask you for that information. I really don't even know why you would think that would be helpful. Um, but people say things like that all the time. And you can just kind of see people communicate with you differently. They're just like a little kinder in a way that feels disingenuous. Like they they kind of tiptoe around you, and the thing that you want when you're going through it is just for people to say, "I'm here." Yeah, and you're the same person, and you're gonna be the same person, and the person that you are is gonna be strong and figure this out. And I know you are, and I trust that. Rather than looking at you going, "Oh God, you're gonna collapse in any moment," and this is just gonna be, or they're reflecting back to you what you already know, which is yeah. this situation is terribly shitty, but we have to find a way to live inside of it. And that's what I think any family is doing when you're dealing with someone who's sick and you don't know what the outcome is going to be. Some gem. (laughs) Melissa Tang, everyone. Before we wrap up this interview, I want to, I have one last question. Mm -hmm. Would you rather have, would you rather have your spinoff be with Alan Arkin or Michael Douglas? Um, I would only say Michael because I feel like we could get a couple more years out of him before he retires from acting. Yeah. Um, but I would I would happily take either of them. Um, 
Michael's in more of a scenes with us in acting class and he's awesome. And so I could, I could say for a fact that that would be great, but I would also say that Alan is hilarious and amazing. And so I'd, I'd take anything I could get. I mean, <laughs> it would you, be you do either show is what I do. Saying. I definitely do either show and I'd be, I'd be happy just to be a fly on the wall and, and see them do their work because they're awesome. Um, but I would, uh, I guess I'd pick Michael. Okay. Yeah, that's good. That's fair. Michael Douglas, Melissa Tang, the spinoff. The <laughs> it's called <laughs> Melissa's Method. <laughs> Melissa's Kaminsky, Kaminsky yeah, Method. Yeah, and he's my student. That would never happen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Melissa. Thank you, Melissa. Thank you. You're so You're so